Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Ben, the CTO at Branch, and we discuss how Branch is delivering financial services to the mobile generation in emerging markets. The story behind the time that Ben won a technology Emmy and overcoming the challenges of booting up a distributed engineering team when the world is shut down. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, we've had like a string of financial products and stuff like that on the show recently. And I saw like branches, branches of financial company, but you, you don't operate the way like Plaid operates. You're in a different market, right? That's right. Yeah. Branch International, as the name uh, implies, uh, is focused on international markets, um, particularly emerging markets. And yeah, has been around for about five years. Um, was actually started by some uh, folks coming out of Kiva, Kiva.org. I don't know if you're familiar with that nonprofit, but I would say it was the nonprofit that probably put microfinance kind of on the map or made it uh, something of a, you know, something people in the US were familiar with. And Matt Flannery, uh, who was one of the founders of, of Kiva and led Kiva for 10 years, um, started Branch five years ago, um, kind of with a similar idea and similar focus, except it's not a nonprofit, it's a for profit, but really focused on, you know, uh, delivering world-class financial services to what we call the mobile generation, um, essentially focusing on emerging markets and focusing on uh, people that, uh, you know, up until now, up until recently, didn't have access to formal financial services, which, you know, is is a large group of people. You might be surprised. I think I was, look, I was looking it up. There's still around 1.5 billion adults in the world, around 30% of like the adult global adult population that still are unbanked, meaning they don't have uh, an actual bank account or a mobile uh, mobile money account um, with anyone. And then there's an even larger proportion of people that are underbanked, meaning they may have a bank account or something along those lines, but they don't get access to you know, financial services. They don't have access to credit. They don't have access to savings. Um, and so, you know, that's the set of people that that branches, or that's the problem that branches is uh, looking to address, and, and that um, we've been working on for the last five years. So, are these un unbanked people? Is this like underdeveloped countries? Yeah, a lot of it is emer in emerging markets. Uh, there's, there's obviously, actually, surprisingly enough, there's a large percentage of people in the U.S. who you could consider underbanked by one definition or another. It's obviously a bit of a, a fuzzy term, but I think even in the U.S. 22% of adults either don't have a credit score or have a very thin credit file, meaning you know there's not a lot of um, information about them in that sense. Uh, and as a result of that, they'll have trouble getting access to credit. But of course, a large fact, fraction of people that you know that um, are underbanked um, and unbanked are in emerging markets. Um, India, I think it's you know probably around uh, 300, 400 million people that don't have a credit score that may not have a bank account. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And then uh, lots of other markets in Asia, in Africa, um, in um, South America, etc. And so, how did you get into the financial market space? Yeah, for me, this is actually my first foray into this. I, I you know, don't have a, a long history of uh, of being in in financial services or fintech, um, and I've been with Branch for two years. But um, I've known the founders um, basically since they started the company back in late 2014, early 2015. I um, got introduced to them back then. 
and even considered joining Branch um, as a co-founder at the time. Uh, this is sort of a, a separate story, but ultimately decided to do my own startup instead. Um, but then, you know, three years later, reconnected with them, and uh, they were looking to help. You know, we're looking for someone to help run the engineering team, and uh, you know, that's when we we, we reconnected, and um, and uh, you know, I had been excited about what they're doing and really interested in the space ever since meeting them first and um, you know joined them to to help them scale the engineering team and help them scale the business too what was the company that you founded yeah the company i founded was called uh, mensch labs um, and the product we uh we launched was called rep uh, and uh this was something i started with um previously i'd been at google and youtube for a long time and uh, I, I teamed up with um, another ex-Googler, also conveniently called Ben. So for a little while, the, the um, I guess the code name for for our yet to be named startup was Ben Squared. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, Rep was uh, was intended to be a you know customer service, customer communications platform focused on messaging. So this was around 2015, and um, there was a lot of hype around messaging and using that as a communication channel for all sorts of things, also chatbots and automation around that. And we were interested in figuring out how can we offer a platform that allows businesses to communicate with customers through that channel, both for customer service, but also for marketing and, and customer engagement, as well as transactional messaging. And how do you package all of that up? How do you give the business a 360 view of the customer to help them understand what they might want to do next and you know offer really excellent customer service? And so we ended up building that platform, worked with uh, a number um, of uh, e-commerce businesses, Timbuktu, MGME, MM Lafleur. Um, these are all kind of higher-end e-commerce businesses. And ultimately, you know, got got to the point where you got paying customers um, and uh, you got some traction, but not enough to justify continuing to do it. And uh, and so then, you know, we we were at this point where we we're like, should we raise another round of funding? Um, do we really have confidence that we can scale this? And we decided, you know, it's probably better to um, try and do something else. Yeah, you can go in, you can get some paying customers and have it work, right? Like have it up, but then there not be like a large growth potential. It could just be like a really slow process to acquire. You could have eight month sales cycles, customers that what they're willing to pay for your solution is not large enough to where you have a, a small number of really large customers. And so it's just right. like, sometimes the businesses just aren't something, you know, and sometimes they would even make for like great lifestyle businesses where you could just, mm -hmm. you know, make a couple hundred grand a year and just kind of let it go. But I, I want like big, I want to like be yeah. really valuable and useful. I want to be like Elon Musk valuable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, you describe it well. We found ourselves essentially in that situation, you know, we had revenue, um, but it wasn't growing fast enough. And we wondered, you know, is this going to be something that's going to have like rocket ship potential or up into the right type potential? And I think we ultimately concluded, yeah, the sales cycle is too slow and the, the exact proposition or customer value proposition isn't quite there. You know, is it differentiated enough compared to other customer service tools? Uh, how does it play with other marketing solutions that a lot of businesses already have and invest heavily in? So, yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I think one thing that's interesting about startups is like it despite all the lean startup and customer development and you know all the all the good work that's been done there and all the writing around it i still it was eye opening to me how difficult it can be to sort of truly assess like is there something here or not 
because you get a lot of positive signals. Like people are excited about what you're building. They think this sounds great. A bunch of people tell you they'll buy. Um, you, you get early customers. But then, you know, it, it takes a while to get to that point. And at some point it may fizzle out. And it's not clear to me that we could have seen that coming much earlier other than by building it and going on to the market and doing the things we were doing. So, But you learned so much, like, and you got yeah. that feeling because you had been at larger companies before, right? You get all the benefits and the great pay, and then you go do your own thing and you're like, oh, this is so difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, this was one of the reasons I, I wanted to do this. Um, as I mentioned, I was at uh, Google for a long time. This is essentially where I started my career. And I learned a lot there. I had a great time. I think I grew tremendously as an engineer and as a technologist, but I was pretty shielded from the business side of things. You know, I mean, I interacted with product managers uh, and obviously lots of other engineers, but very little with marketing, very little with biz dev, very little with anyone who sort of thought about the, you know, how does the business actually generate revenue? And um, I wanted more exposure to that, which was, you know, one of the key reasons for me to to leave and, and do my own thing and start from the very, very beginning of, you know, ideation and then trying to find product market fit. Yeah, I saw that you um, you won a technology Emmy. Now, I didn't even know those things existed. What what is that? <laughs> I didn't know either until I won it. <laughs> yeah, so the Emmys are the Emmys are you know obviously um, TV awards, um, and they're given out in different categories. I think they're the primetime Emmys, the daytime Emmys, sports Emmys, and there's also a separate category called the technology Emmys. I think they're given out by the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and so. They um, basically hand out awards to a bunch of innovations that happen in TV production, um, all the way from the Steadicam, which I think was getting an award the same year that we were getting one, to cue cards that were invented sometime in the 70s. So there's a wide range of things that, that are eligible for Emmy Awards. And um, we won one, I think, in 2014 uh, for the recommendation system that I helped build at YouTube, along with a bunch of other, you know, uh, big internet companies that had also moved the space forward. Netflix, I think TiVo, I don't recall um, who else. But so, um, because I was running the, the YouTube recommendation system and I was uh, essentially had architected the system from the ground up, I got to go and um, actually both make our case in the in the meetings where these things were decided among you know a bunch of people that are in this academy. Uh, and then also... There was an award ceremony in Vegas, I think at the at the Bellagio. I don't remember where I got to give a little awkward acceptance speech. Do you have like so a somewhere. little trophy thing on your mantle? I do. Yeah, we. I got some. Uh, I got some uh, pictures of uh, you know us holding the Emmy. Um, in fact, you know my boss at the time then organized a whole photo shoot um, where like the entire team um, at YouTube got to go and and uh, you know hold up the Emmy and, and pose with it, um, like award ceremony style. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, very fun memories of that. That's pretty cool. Now that yeah. was like five plus years ago though, right? That was a while. Right, back. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. now that recommendations are like a national, like political style topic going yeah. on, are people like hating on you for this? Or do you just try to like be like, shh? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've not been involved in it since 2015. So um, obviously, you know, I'm not necessarily in, in those conversations. I know there was a, a documentary a while ago about about some of this. Uh, no one reached out to me, so uh, <laughs> I didn't have much to say about it. I would say that, you know, the, the topic of like filter bubble and um, how you, 
you know, can make sure that you expose people to a wide variety of viewpoints and not just the things that they cared about or, or you know, that was like very narrowly focused on their interests. That was something that we were thinking about and talking about even back then. But I think, you know, the team at, at YouTube and, and at some of the other bigger companies that have similar systems in place, I think they've been doing a lot more work and thinking around how to balance that since since I was involved. Oh, it's changed so much. Things changed so fast. This was five years ago. That's like 50 years ago in tech. Like the way that the yeah. recommendation in the, uh, engines are working today are probably vastly different than what you were building. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, it, it changed a lot uh, throughout the course of... Um, you know, me being involved, just to give you a, a sense, I think when when I started working on this, there was, I would say, a prototype system in place. This was like in, in 2010. And um, literally, we stored fragments of, of a user's watch history in their cookie, and then, you know, computer recommendations on the fly using some cache that happened to be sitting around for some other purpose. And so it was something that someone had built in the course of a hackathon or over, you know, a few weeks uh, and so then, you know, we really re-architected the system, built it from the ground up for scalability, incorporated a lot more complicated, um, sophisticated algorithms, layered on machine learning in various places, et cetera, et cetera. So it evolved a lot even during the time that I was there. But then since then, is it's I'm sure it's changed tremendously, even more so. Yeah, and this is definitely not my area of expertise, but mm-hmm. you know, we're we're all users of these types of products. And mm-hmm. when I think about these conversations, like my I've evolved, like my thoughts have evolved on it. At first, I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, you should definitely show people like maybe two different types of content so that they understand. And then I was like, you know what? It's really and now I'm kind of like in this in this field of like, we should really focus on like raising quality people, like in the homes and in the families, like we should make sure that like we resource people to have really good quality families. So we're building a, a strong next generation of people. Mm-hmm. And then on the technology side, we should give people like control, right? And for me, like the way I would set up my YouTube or whatever system you want, um, maybe like even a Facebook feed, is I would I would want the ability to like create different narrow feeds and cycle between them. Like I'd be happier with like my guitar feed or my piano feed that like is just really, really good at recommending exactly something I want in that niche. And then I can just switch between the context and I can, and then it's just up to us as like humans to understand that like we need a balanced feed, but the tools themselves just can be really narrow and good at doing those things. Yeah. And I think we always tried to accommodate like different modalities of discovery. It wasn't just all about here's what we recommend and you know that's the only thing you ever get to watch there was always <laughs> I mean, there's obviously a search but there's also lots of browsing capabilities we built topic pages various ways of slicing and dicing the recommendations into different categories like you like you mentioned so there's a lot of thought put into that i think one challenge with system like systems like this and the people working on them is that there's sort of a um I don't know what the right word is, but like a little bit of a friction between our, we, we say we would like to have all this control, but when you look at the data of how most people use it, they actually default to the defaults, right? And the, the first thing you put in front of them is most likely what they're going to click. And so, you know, adding more buttons, adding more sliders, adding more ways to slice and dice things uh, ends up getting taken up by a really small a proportion of your user base and then you have to sort of justify you know is it worth the additional complexity is it worth the additional work 
uh, to put that in. So I think this is always a really delicate balancing balancing act. Yeah, and I can always get my what I what I really love is like they have different profiles now. So even when I'm watching Disney with my kids, like there's different Netflix profiles. Like you can go into different mm-hmm. stuff, and I really really enjoy that. I wish that would extend farther because like we have Amazon Fire Stick TV or whatever for the mm-hmm. for our living yeah. room, and the giant images aren't that they s- scroll to promote mm-hmm. whatever they want to promote is not necessarily kid friendly because we're not like in a section of the kid app or like in a mm-hmm. specific and i'm just like how have how have they not gotten enough complaints to solve this yet there's like a picture of somebody being killed and like my oh. three-year-old sitting on the couch like looking at it and then it cycles to like a disney princess and i'm like oh this is this is not like something i want my kids experiencing you know yeah yeah who knows i'm, I'm assuming you can you can handle that for me <laughs> you can reach out to Bezos. Not on the Am- not on the Amazon Fire Stick. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, <laughs> different different company. <laughs> I tried. I tried. No, I'm glad we got to connect though, because you know I was talking with David, um, the CTO over at Andela, and he's like, "This guy's the guy. He's really cool. You would love to meet him. He's responsible for Fire Stick development <laughs> on the weekends." You got no. that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so Andela, I had heard about them way long ago from, I think, Matish or Matesh, I always get his name wrong, is CTO at the Zebra. And he was talking about how he used them with great success. And then we ended up talking with them and I got to meet him and he told me about his trips to Africa. And then I said, hey, who else should I be talking to? And he mentioned you and you guys were a customer of Andela's. And I was just curious, what was your experience like? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a, is a good topic. As I mentioned, you know, Branch is an international company. It's got international in the name. And even though it was founded in the U.S. by um, by people based in San Francisco, that's where I am based, the customer base was always uh, going to be in, in other markets, not in the U.S. And so it started out in Kenya, um, offering essentially a mobile app there that, you know, you could download on the Play Store uh, and then apply for a loan, a micro loan, you know, loans as small as the equivalent of $5 going up to maybe... 100 to 200 dollars at most and then just get that dispersed into your mobile wallet so there was a lot of need for that kind of product over time it grew and um the company expanded into um additional markets first tanzania then nigeria um later outside of africa also into mexico and india and so with every one every single expansion we ended up opening another office in those markets for operations um, customer service loan review some finance and accounting um, but the engineering team had actually always re- and the engineering and product team had always remained in san francisco um, just because you know that's where the founders were based that's where the initial starting team was based it was easier to hire engineers here it was good to be like in a small setting you know sit around one table literally um, and so that's how it had evolved. But we got to a point where we realized, you know, we really need to diversify and, and distribute our product and engineering teams more because, you know, we want to have people in the markets that we're in help us build the product and help us build the technology. Why? Because they understand the customer better. They live, you know, in the same country, in the same, they have the same day-to-day experiences. It's very hard for me to actually use our app because I don't have a Nigerian phone number or a Nigerian bank account. And so I can't go through our onboarding flow and, and test it out. I think it's really important for product and engineering teams to like, you know, work really closely on the on the product they work on and have sort of an opinion as to what could be better 
and and that build that intuitive understanding as opposed to just you know being told by others um obviously that's important too but if you're not using the product on a day-to-day -day basis it's really difficult to build customer empathy so we wanted to do that that was the sort of starting point and actually in addition to customer empathy one other thing i should mention is just building anything in fintech typically involves integrating with a lot of third parties um so in our case you know we have to move money around so we had to in kenya integrate with mpesa it's the mobile money wallet that uh, is really prevalent there um, similar integrations in other markets we have to integrate with kyc portals kyc is know your customers or you know identity verification uh, in some instances we have to report certain things to the government in terms of loan repayments or credit bureaus and so all of that um, is pretty challenging in general but it's even more challenging when you're doing it you know nine to 12 time zones away and with with people that are um are typically not accustomed to working with someone this far away that they want to meet in person, et cetera, et cetera. So why did you choose Andela instead of building the teams out yourself? Yeah, good question. So um, we just felt like this was a, like initially the, the thinking was, this is a good way for us to like dip our toes into the water. You know, like we don't, yeah, we operate in Nigeria, but I'd never hired a single engineer in Nigeria or Kenya for that matter. I had no idea what the talent market looked like. I had no idea, you know, what recruiting would look like, how difficult it would be. And so we figured this is a good way for us to try this out. Um, we get to hire, you know, one to two, three, four engineers and um, see what that's like. How can we work together as a more distributed team? And um, yeah, just how, how all of that's working out. And so that's how we started out. That was, I think, middle of last year um, we had some folks come on in may of 2019 uh, the first two developers joined us at that point um, both backend developers and um, yeah it's worked out really well and we've basically grown the team to i think about seven uh, engineers through andela at this point um, ranging in sort of specializations and skill sets from backend to android to um to devops as well most of them are actually located in markets we're at so four in nigeria two in kenya and we have one uh, devops developer in, in egypt as well which is not a market we operate in but um you know for, for infrastructure in some sense it it's you know it's less important where you're based and yeah i would say andela has just generally worked out really well for us the quality of the engineers has been great um not just in terms of you know, smarts and technical competence. But I think one thing Andela has done really well is essentially the model they started with was that they would identify um, just, you know, talented people, talented people with an engineering background or maybe even with, with less of a formal uh, computer science or engineering education and then train them to... Um, train them to be excellent software developers, train them on like modern software development methodologies, working with remote teams, working with international companies. And so I think we've really benefited from that. I think everyone on the team, they're strong communicators. Um, they're very uh, accountable for, for their work and uh, they're just generally a lot of fun to work with. And so that's been great. So good choice then. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we're continuing to work with Andela. Like we, we've evolved our distributed team strategy to um, also hire in-house. So Andela was essentially the first step for us. Uh, and then as we gain more confidence that, hey, this is something that is working well for us, you know, we really benefit from having engineers and, and, um, and uh, you know, product developers in local markets. We decided, okay, let's do some of that in-house as well. And so beginning of 2020, 
we started building out a team in India, which is another important growth market for us that we had launched in the year before. And um, essentially started looking for a lead, someone who could help us build the team. Yeah, can you walk me through real quick? Because I you, I haven't, I always like research people and I was like, this guy's an expert. He knows how to build teams in different countries. Like it was great when you did it in Africa and you had Andela because mm-hmm. you could just plug them right in. But when you go into India and it's like COVID, like how do you build <laughs> a team in another country when the world is like shut down? How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was an interesting experience. So we, you know, we got started on this beginning of the year, and then as we were like hitting our stride and you know like finding good candidates, and we were like we had a, a bunch of folks um, based in San Francisco ready to travel to India, and this was like around mid March, and then you know COVID essentially became the the all encompassing topic that everyone was talking about. We decided to cancel our trip. Two days later, the Indian government suspended our visa. So even if we had not canceled, we wouldn't have been able to get in. And we ended up doing the entire interview process, both for this lead role, as well as for all the subsequent um, software engineering roles uh, entirely through Zoom. This is why I'm on on Zoom (laughs) eight hours a day. And yeah, initially, I remember thinking, this is going to be really challenging you know, we'd never done this before. Can I imagine hiring someone for an important role that I've never met in person? But it turned out to actually work surprisingly well. And I don't know if it's just because we got lucky or because we had a solid process that, you know, was easily adaptable to to Zoom and to doing everything remotely. Um, But both the interview experience as well as the onboarding um, for, for everyone on the team, I think, has worked out really well for us. And so I'm, I'm generally very, very happy with how that's worked out. Um, one key challenge, of course, is time zone differences. I mean, the difference between San Francisco and India is between 12 and a half to 13 and a half hours, depending on whether we're in daylight savings time or not. Uh, and so finding time to actually meet in person or at the same time is, is at a premium. And so what that means is you need to shift more and more of your communication and of your processes to be done asynchronously, right? Have more written communication, get better at that. Um, maybe record more things and make them available for, for others to look at later. And so we leaned heavily on that during our onboarding. Um, a lot of our onboarding sessions got recorded. In fact, a lot of our interviews um, got recorded and others had a chance to review them later. And um, you know, then obviously written communication and written documentation is also something that we really emphasized and stressed even more so since since bringing on that team so walk me through it like you're you're sort of like coaching me if you want to open an office in another country first you have to Mm -hmm. have like an idea of what why you need it like a mission for them then you find the first Mm -hmm. developer then you have what that first developer start like or you know that first technology leader start hiring out locally like how does what's what is the flow yeah that's a good question i mean I don't think there's necessarily just one model that can work. Um, I think what matters is that you're conscious and deliberate about your approach. So, you know, some people I think um, decide, you know, they don't actually want to just build an office in one country, but instead they just want to open up uh, their hiring pipeline for remote opportunities, maybe all across the US or maybe all across a certain set of time zones that they're comfortable with. And then they go about it this way and they just hire individuals as, you know, as they open roles and come across qualified candidates. I think that's a model that can work. That's not the model we opted for. We explicitly wanted, you know, higher in the in the markets that we're operating in for all the reasons I mentioned. And so 
when we looked around how to do this, we had a few decisions to make. One was, you know, how do you sequence it? As you mentioned, we decided let's bring in a lead first and then have them be responsible for building the team around them. That was, I would say, overwhelming advice we got from a number of folks, and that has worked out well for us. And it was it was not easy because it meant that while you're still doing this, and this can be a lengthy process because you're trying to hire for an important role, you have to hold back on hiring software engineers and, um, and other people that you maybe already have a need for and that you feel like you could make productive. Um, but we decided to sequence it this way. And I'm happy with you know how that's worked out for us. Another important consideration for us in India was like what city to focus on. And this these discussions happened before COVID, where you know everyone was a little bit more, I think, still attached to like building things in a certain location and having an office and, and so on and so forth. And so we ultimately settled on Bangalore, even though we already had an existing operations focused office in Mumbai. Um, and the reason was just that I think Bangalore as I was told, it just has the largest talent pool uh, when it comes to engineering and when it comes to technologists in India. And um, also has probably the strongest startup ecosystem, which was something we were specifically looking for. You know, We wanted to hire people that had worked at some of the fastest growing startups in India, smaller startup companies, product-focused companies, as opposed to a lot of the, there's a lot of, you know, large technology outsourcers and, and contractors and we were, I think, generally more interested in people that had product experience. So that led us to to choose Bangalore. And yeah, then we we um, you know we structured an interview process for a lead. Um, I think it took us end to end, somewhere around four months to actually hire someone, which is is a long time, especially in startup land. But I think it worked out well in that. Um, Ancho, the person we brought on, uh, you know, he's been he's been great, and he's been a force multiplier for us in India, and he's you know, built a really strong team around him since he joined. So we're currently at about 12 people in India, have further growth plans for next year. And um, yeah, I would say that that's worked out well for us. What's the thing that you're like really excited about right now at Branch? Yeah, I mean, a, a, a few different things. I think on the product side, we started with with lending, um, built this microloans product, but we've really been focused over the last year on diversifying our product portfolio. The company's mission is to offer financial services to the mobile generation, not lending per se. Um, and even though lending is going to be a key component of what we offer, or credit services are going to be a key component of what we offer, um, we're really interested in offering additional services. So in Nigeria specifically, we just launched a wallet product um, that allows people to um, transfer money to their friends. You can think of this as sort of similar to Venmo, similar to some other wallets that exist. But in Nigeria, there's just a huge need for these kinds of products. Bank transfers are um, slow, unreliable, and costly. And so you know, we, we see a, a huge potential for that. I think in India, we're going to continue to really grow the lending business and the, and the credit business. And I'm excited about that. And then more on the like engineering side, we're continuing to grow the team internationally. So we're going through a similar process as I was describing for India. We're doing something very similar for Nigeria right now. Uh, I'm in the middle of interviewing lots of candidates for a lead role, and we're hoping to uh, build an even bigger team there next year. Have you ever lived in another country full-time? Yeah, I've been, I mean, I you know, I'm not originally from the U.S. You may have picked up on my my funny accent. Uh, I grew up in Germany, um, lived there for the first 20 years of my life, 
And uh, then um, actually 23 years, I guess, um, I went to college in Northern Germany at a small place called International University Bremen. And even though it was in Germany, it kind of felt like its own international bubble. Only 20% of the uh, folks were, of the students were German and everybody else was from, from all over the world including some of the countries we work in now, such as India, um, you know, various countries in, in Africa. And I uh, still have lifelong friends from that time. So that, that was a very formative international experience for me, even though it was in Germany. Later on, I moved to the U.S. for grad school. I was in Illinois for two years um, at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, did more computer science and machine learning. And uh, then actually lived in Switzerland for three years after that. Um, working for Google. I've visited some of the countries that we operate in. I was in Kenya for a few weeks back in 2018 and also in India um, a few times. The last time was actually just for two days. That was a bit of a funny story. We um, we were going through some final stages of a security audit um, before launching in India. Um, and we had worked with the auditors that were based in India all throughout you know, the, the last quarter of 2018. Um, but then for the final, final audit, they actually needed me to be there in person. And so I flew over to India. It's like an 18-hour flight with multiple layovers uh, from San Francisco. We had a hour and a half long meeting, <laughs> and then I was, I was free to go. So it was just a, a, a quick two-day trip, but it was worth it. That's crazy. When the travel's longer than like the meeting... Yeah. 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 I was, it was funny. I, um, after the meeting, I, I just kind of looked at, uh, the, you know, a country manager there and, and was like, that was it. Okay. That's, that's what I came here for. And yeah. Um, but all's well, that ends well, I guess. I'm a pretty active person. The international flights are really tough for me. Like I like to wake up and go running and, you know, I like to be really active. I saw that you do some, some running and you play some chess and you cook. Are those your like personal hobbies. I used to be big into running. I've done probably like 20 plus marathons. Um, wow. used to be pretty fast too. Um, but I've slowed down recently. Last few years, I've, I have three kids. That's keeping me pretty busy. Uh, the youngest one was just born this year. Uh, the oldest one is about seven. Congratulations. And so thank you. Yeah. Um, three boys. So, you know, they're, they're keeping me on my toes in, in other ways, but, um, yeah, I still like to go running. San Francisco is obviously great for running. Um, if you like Hills, but my, my volume has definitely decreased this year. I've been having some knee problems too. So somehow need to get over that, but yeah, I love to play chess. That's another uh, hobby of mine. Um, I think that one's been surging or, or booming throughout the, the pandemic with like really renewed interest. So I've been seeing that with, uh, with joy, I guess. And, you know, other than that, I, I do continue to, to stay active. I play a lot of tennis. Uh, that's one of the few things you can, you can do during COVID time. Uh, the public courts in San Francisco are great and they, uh, they mostly kept them open. And so I, I uh, try and do that when I find the time. Yeah. That I've never run like marathons. I just wake up every morning and run like one to three miles. That's yeah. my jog. And, uh, and just to get my heart rate up and to get my, you know, to wake up. Otherwise, if I don't do the run, I'm just like, I drag in the morning. So I wake up, get out of bed, hit the sidewalk within like five minutes of waking up and then go on my run and then come back and, and start life. But uh, yeah, I, I've talked to some people, man, this one guy, the CTO of Calendly, you know, like the calendaring company. 
Mm-hmm. Where he's like, oh yeah, we run. And I was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, yeah, we should run sometime. And I'm like, oh, that's great. He's like, yeah, I run like 20 miles as like a warm up practice. <laughs> and then I run these like hundred mile marathon. I was like, what is going on? I cannot keep up with that. It's like, I, you would hate me if we went running together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I find myself more in your camp at this point. In fact, if I could get back to like doing a three mile run, um, every other day in the morning, I'd be happy. But I used to do longer stuff. I mean, marathon was where it, where it usually tapped out, but I've, I think I've done one 50K trail run. And then I used to, at Google, there was a running team um, that would do these um, relay runs. So I don't know if you've heard of Hood to Coast and the Ragnar relays. It's essentially 12 people that get together and run a 200-mile race. Uh, and you kind of drive along it, uh, along the race course with a van. Um, and so, you know, every runner has... Um, three segments to complete that range anywhere from three to eight miles. But in between you sit in the cramped van and then six hours later you go out and run again. So it's a very different experience. Um, by the time the third leg rolls around, you haven't slept for 20 hours and you're, you're really sore. So, um, but those were always, um, a lot of fun. I have some fun memories of, uh, of, um, of those relays. That's kind of the longest one I've done, I'd say. Oh man. So be, are you, are you like a fan of, of Elon Musk and what he's doing with all of his companies? I mean, I think it's impressive all the different things he's, um, he's accomplished with, you know, with SpaceX, with Tesla, previously with PayPal. So in that sense, a lot of admiration as far as personal style is concerned. I think I, I put myself kind of in a, in a different, or I would say I have a different personal style, um, less blustery, less, uh, less, um, <laughs> less, less billionaire ish. That too. Yeah. <laughs> less like yeah. Twitter billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. But I was interesting to see him saying, you no, know, he's moving to, does he say he's moving to Texas? Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like one Texas. of the, one of the recent announcements. Yeah. So, I mean, that's been a bit of a theme lately in the Bay area, you know, people leaving and, and, and that becoming a, um, a larger theme. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years, both, you know, w- with, yeah, the tech ecosystem evolving and maybe the, the center of gravity changing or, or not. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball and uh, I'm not necessarily the, the greatest when it comes to predicting the future, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley uh, continue to, you know, play a pretty big role when it comes to technology oh of course they'll always play over the, over the coming decades yeah yeah and i mean look i'm not attached to like a location or a building i'm attached to like the mission of us as technologists we're actively waking up every day to make the world better and to help people's lives and improve it and push things forward and and you know help uh, i've never met like nefarious technologists people that are like, oh, like, you know, pinky in the brain, like they're like a children's character, like they're doing it for evil or something. You know, most of the people, they just are doing it to be useful and to help out. And I think it's great that now, you know, all different parts of the world are doing it. And uh, I'm, I'm super pumped, but I was curious. I wanted to play a fun game with you. We just made it up. We really don't play games here on the podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's simple. You could just answer like yes or no. And it, I'm going to go through a list of Elon Musk products you can tell me if you would use them if you uh, personally, okay? Okay. Uh, so the Tesla cars. They're all real. Are they all real products? These are all real Elon Musk products. Yeah. So the Tesla cars. Would you ride in one or would you use one? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. I don't own one, but um, I have ridden in some and I, I would consider them. I do most of my uh, most of my getting around on a, an electric bike at this point. I bought like a, an electric cargo bike a year ago, and that's been a great way for us to get around in San Francisco. Um, but we do have a car. I think if we were to buy a new one, I'd seriously consider a Tesla. So with the electric bike, you pedal, it charges the battery, and sometimes you can use the electric motor? Uh, the battery needs to be charged through a plug, um, but the battery kicks in, um, you know, when you have to go uphill, which, you know, is frequently the case in San Francisco and it helps when you have, you know, one or two little kids on the back. So I can actually take my seven-year-old and my three-year-old and take them to school or take them to daycare and go shopping. So it's been great for that. That's great. I have two little ones under the age of three or under the age of four, I guess now. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine like riding with them on a bike uphill in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need you need a motor. I mean, I'm in pretty good shape, but I would, I wouldn't want to do it on a on a non motorized bike. All right, rockets. Would you ride in one of his rockets? I would love to. I mean, I guess if I had the chance to like um I don't know, fly to space or have a have a sort of weightless experience, uh that that sounds really fascinating. My seven-year-old is really into everything related to space. And so that, you know, has given me a renewed interest in that. And I think all of that is just really fascinating. What I actually find more fascinating almost though, is like how they managed to do it 50 years ago with the technology they had at the time and, you know, managed to fly a bunch of folks to the moon and bring them back safely. I think that's still just absolutely mind blowing to me. Me too. Whenever I see that, that like NASA picture of the programming code all printed out on stacks of paper yeah. and the processing power that was, that was used in order to make that mission happen. Yeah. And that it, it, to me, it's like, if I saw an old rusty car, I'd be like, I'm not getting in that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's less than what's in your cell phone today. Right. And that's, that's uh, all they needed to, to do it. So do you know about the zero G flights that you can buy and go take? heard of that i mean i i haven't like seriously looked into this i always assume this is like out of my um out of my price range <laughs> i don't i don't think and, so like okay. i think they i think they started like two grand or something i mean it's not like okay. it's not okay. n cheap by any means but it's right. not like a right. hundred thousand dollar ticket i talked to like some people i don't know if they were astronauts or not but they definitely worked with astronauts i had like i'm a big space geek um i'm just like a fan i don't like know a lot of the details but i had a bunch of uh like different space companies on recently and different, you know, really bright people in that arena. And uh, they were telling me, one of them was like, yeah, my buddy owns like the zero G company. And I was like, that's a thing. That's like, it's open to the public. You can go do it. And so I researched and, and you can go, you can do the zero G flights. They have them in different locations of the U S they have flights where you can actually like get into like uh MIGs or like different, like F 16s, like different type of fighter pilot jets um, and they'll take you up for 90 minutes. And I was like, this is so cool. We have to find a way to like, go get them and like do something with the podcast with them and help them promote it. So I can get to take one of these zero G flights, uh, <laughs> do a podcast from the MIG oh, <laughs> a live broadcast. Yes. Hey, and if you know anyone with a Starlink right now, we're working on a, um, we want to be like the first episode, like recorded over Starlink, like the first podcast recorded over a Starlink connection. So we're okay. trying to get our hands on one of those. So I, yeah, I'm not sure I can help with that, but <laughs> it's all right. I'm putting it out there. We talked to one guy and is like, fr he's, his like, he's in the circle of friends with Elon Musk. And so he's like, yeah, I know like four or five people that have them already early. And so we're working that angle. 
Uh, and if that doesn't work out, we're just going to keep bringing it up to people and see if we can do it. We, I'm just a geek. Like, yes, that's cool for me. My wife's like, what do you want for your birthday? I was like, I don't know. Let's record a star, an episode over Starlink. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I can't do that, Joel. <laughs> yeah, it's not something I can easily make happen. All right, what about Hyperloop? Would you ride in the giant Hyperloop? I guess so. I haven't really given this a ton of thought. I'm, I'm not really sure where it's at in terms of you know actually being a thing versus just a. Oh, it's a thing. It's a thing. They have a facility. They're manufacturing it. I think. What did they pick? Like, I think like North Carolina, like some some state they picked to. Uh, like actually build a facility in another country, like purchased a Hyperloop thing. Yeah, it's it's happening. I mean, I don't see why not. That said, I think train rides, one thing about, one thing I like about trains is, you know, actually some of them go pretty slow and that can be a fun experience too. I once took a, a train from San Francisco all the way to Chicago. There's a, an Amtrak train called the California Zephyr and it takes like three days um, to do that, to do that kind of journey. Um, but it's beautiful scenery. You get to meet a lot of people. And so, you know, that has uh, its own appeal. Um, but of course, if I can zip from one place to another in, in 20 minutes, at how fast do they go? Oh, uh, close to the speed up light. Maybe close to the speed of sound. I have no idea. But yeah, you know, that's, it sounds like fun. I would, I would take the Hyperloop. I know, but they would need to put, we need to put like some like LCDs in there. Cause I think a lot of them are like underground, you know, like, uh, you would need it to look kind of cool, but I do know what you're talking about. I was very surprised to find out how many like active railroads are there are in the U S mm -hmm. because my wife and I were talking last year, like, let's do like a unique trip, like something interesting. And we found that the railroads, you can go get like a luxury railroad car and, you know, take something up to the Carolinas from Florida and it'd only be a couple hours, but it's, it's slow and kind of the sites are beautiful. And so we were like, Oh, that's kind of neat. And they stop, you can, they, they'll stop at different stations. You can get off and go, go around. So, uh, I didn't, I didn't know that existed in, in our country. And I was like, that if is you, so cool. If you ever find yourself needing to go cross country and you're not, um, in a hurry to get there, then I can highly recommend it. Our journey ended up taking, I think we were delayed by 12 hours which seemed pretty normal. Um, and most of that was just um, basically somewhere in the Nevada desert, there was a freight train that had broken down ahead of us and there's just a single track. And so you just got to wait until that train um, is moving again before you can go. And so we were just sitting there for 11 hours. That's crazy. But at least they had like air conditioning, right? And the desert and everything. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and good food, even though after three days, the menu, you know, gets repetitive, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a, definitely a, a great experience. Now, what about the Neuralink brain interface? Would you get one of those implanted in you? Uh, probably not. <laughs> okay. All right. We got our first <laughs> <That's>, no. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little too far out there for me. How many people would have to get it and enjoy it and have a benefit that you like knew, like how many people mm. before you would be like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. That's a good question. I haven't, haven't thought of it. Say more about the interface. I've just been following this sort of on the side, but like, so, so far you they're putting it into pigs. So that's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be used for like life threatening medical things like paralysis and all of it's basically what he's doing. There's like tons of these brain interfaces out there existing. He did not invent these things. What he did was, and he 
did the very Musk, Musk thing he does where he like rebuilds it from the ground up and then it's like an order of magnitude higher resolution and you can do so much more. And if you extend it out, you know, 10, 20, 50 years, you can easily see that we'll have some sort of like API to the brain where we could, you know, like have calls with each other, or, you know, do some interesting things. That's like the, the hope of the future. It seems pretty cool, but it would need yeah. to be somebody smarter than me that I really respected that had it and found a significant benefit to it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't put myself in the early adopter bucket for this one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> a few more people have tried it before me. Let a couple million people do it and then I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. <laughs> um, tequila. Tequila. Would you drink his tequila? Oh, I didn't even know this. He has his own tequila brand. He, he's done some specialty products. Uh, okay. He's done the tequila. No, it's, it was Tesla tequila. You could buy some Tesla tequila. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. For I don't sure. see why not. Tequila is probably not like my go-to drink, but you know, if I ever um, find myself in need of a tequila sunrise, or I guess what else do you use tequila for? You <laughs> tequila would, shots. yeah, <laughs> yeah. You would drink tequila in a Tesla car on the way to the rocket ship. That's it. Yeah. Now, uh, have you seen the short shorts he's made? I've not, no. Oh, okay. So he does these like weird products where he'll just make them and like put them online and be like, there are 1 million. He did it with a flamethrower. Would you buy the, oh, the flamethrower? Yeah. I've okay. Seen the flamethrower. All yeah. right. Would you, if I had a need for a flamethrower, okay. I, I would buy his flamethrower. Okay. But I haven't found myself in a situation where I thought I could really use a flamethrower here right now. So, well, you haven't been to the North Pole, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I do t start an expedition to the North Pole, I'll make sure to stock up on Elon Musk's flamethrowers. You've given me some ideas for my next vacation once uh, <laughs> this whole COVID thing is over and we can we can travel again. Um, I'll put that on the list. Yeah, are you guys still locked down pretty hard there? Is it going to be like a lockdown through the holidays? Pretty much. We're just staying here. San Francisco has a, another stay-at-home order, and so you know we're we're trying our best to stay home and and not expose ourselves too much. It's um. It's a little sad because my family is in Germany, my wife's family is in the UK, and so we won't get to see any of them. But um, I think that's for the best this time. And you know, I hope next year will be a different story. Yeah, my wife and I, we have a lot of friends from other countries and or friends that live here who have family in other countries. We have friends in other countries. And it's been interesting. Like there's a lot of you know different holiday holidays have been shaken up because, you know, normally the parents come over from the UK or from Australia or like with the friends and everything like that. Um, and, you know, it's just changed because those countries are just like their visas are shut down. They're like, we're not, you don't get to co move countries right now. So yeah. And vice versa. I, I don't think my parents would be allowed to come here right now with uh, the U S travel restrictions. So yeah, no one can go. Well, zoom, zoom it up. Family yeah, zoom. That's, yeah, that's what we've been doing. <laughs> so it's Zoom for work, Zoom for personal life, Zoom for everything. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.